All right, tonight I'm going to be coming from uh, Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3. It's one that I quote all the time, I read all the time, but I finally go, go on and try to tackle it. Go on and tackle it. It says, let us stop going over the same old ground again and again, always teaching those first lessons about Christ. Let us go on instead to other things and become mature in our understanding, as strong Christians ought to be. Surely we don't need to speak further about the foolishness of trying to be saved by being good or about the necessity of faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptism, spiritual gifts, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. The Lord willing, we will go on now to other things. Uh, no one can escape coming into the world as a baby because that is the only way that we can get here. But it is tragic when a baby fails to mature, no matter how much parents and grandparents love to hold the cute, cuddly baby. It is their great desire to see that baby grow up and enjoy a full life as a mature adult. God has the same desire for his children. That is why he calls us to go on to maturity. So tonight I want to talk about moving on to perfection. Here, uh, Paul, well, we believe it's Paul, but the Hebrew writer lists three principal doctrines. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrines or teachings of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He says these six things we really shouldn't be hashing over and over and over again. But to understand where he's going for him, because he starts with the word therefore, so he is actually telling them something that was triggered from a previous thought. So we're going to go up to chapter 5 and pick up the last few verses there and see what his problem was with these good old immature Christians. He says in verse number 12 of chapter 5, You have been Christians a long time now. And you ought to be teaching others, but instead you have dropped back to the place where you need someone to teach you all over again the very first principles in God's word. You are like babies who can drink only milk, not old enough for solid food. And when a person is still living on milk, it shows he isn't very far along in the Christian life and doesn't know much about the difference between right and wrong. He is still a baby Christian you will never be able to eat solid spiritual food and understand the deeper things of God's word until you become better Christians and learn right from wrong by practicing doing right. Uh, we also read that uh, Paul had the same problem with the Corinthians. So let's pick up 1 Corinthians 3. All right, but in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, he says, Dear brothers, I've been talking to you as though you were still just babies in the Christian life who are not following the Lord, but your own desires. I cannot talk to you as I would to healthy Christians who are filled with the spirit. I have had to feed you with milk and not with solid food because you couldn't digest anything stronger. And even now you still have to be fed on milk. For you are still only baby Christians controlled by your own desires, not God's. When you are jealous of one another and divide up into quarreling groups, doesn't that prove you are still babies wanting your own way? 
In fact, you are acting like people who don't belong to the Lord at all. There you are quarreling about whether I am greater than Apollos and dividing the church. Doesn't this show how little you have grown in the Lord? Now, the problem with the Corinthian church was not so much fornication, drinking, and all that stuff. Their thing was they had their favorite preacher. They were pitting Paul against Apollos and Apollos against Silas and Silas against Peter and saying, well, you know, my favorite preacher is better than your favorite preacher. He says, that's why you're like babies. All right. So these stagnant Christians could claim no right to true spirituality. You, You can claim that you're spiritual, that you're a Christian, that you're saved. But the proof is always in the pudding. So you don't have to turn to it. But 1 Corinthians 2 and 9 says, That is what is meant by the scriptures which say that no mere man has ever seen, heard, or even imagined what wonderful things God has ready for those who love the Lord. But we know about these things because God has sent his spirit to tell us and his spirit searches out and shows us All of God's deepest secrets. No one can really know what anyone else is thinking or what he is really like except that person himself. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And God has actually given us his spirit to tell us about the wonderful free gifts of grace and blessing that God has given us. So if we want to get into the spiritual spiritual deep things of God. It's going to have to come from him alone. We we can share a lot, but if if the Holy Ghost doesn't illuminate your mind, it'll pass right over you. So we, we want to move on to other things in the scriptures. There's so much depth in the word of God that if you dig down deep under the black and white, there's so much more underneath it. So this is why they had to go on to perfection. So let's deal with the marks of spiritual immaturity that Paul deals with here. He, he, he gives us some things in uh, Hebrews 5. Number one, there was a dullness toward the word. A drifting away. Then there was a doubting of the word. Then secondly, they had an inability to share. This is what Natalie was talking about earlier. When you have an inability to share what God has given you, you're not filling your purpose in Christ. So these learners were expected to become teachers, not by profession, but by oratory relation. He expected them to give out what they received. Jesus told the 70, freely you received. Now freely give. Paul said, I have heard, therefore I speak. So there was a dullness toward the word. Then there was an inability to share. Then they were on a baby food diet. The milk of the word refers to what Jesus Christ did on earth. His birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the milk. 
But the meat of the word refers to what Jesus Christ is now doing in heaven. We begin the Christian life on the basis of his finished work on earth, but we grow in the Christian walk on the basis of his unfinished work in heaven. See, we stop at the Mount of Olives where he ascended on high. But we, we, we don't concentrate on what is he doing right now. We skip over to what he's going to do whenever he gets ready. And then we try to rush him. Even so, come on, Lord. Come on. You need to come night. When the bottom line is he's not coming till he's coming. Your only command is to be ready and to occupy till he comes, which means don't just make yourself busy. But occupy means that, that there's a trade going on. There's some some stuff being taken off while there's some stuff being put on. So we don't want to occupy. We just want to rush the, to the end. All right. So how many Christians there are who live on milk? They recognize the ABCs of the gospel and Christ's mission on earth, but gain no nourishment from the meat. Those things that Christ is now doing in heaven. The main theme of the book of Hebrews, the writer is dealing with the high priest. He's going back to the Old Testament and bringing their mind to Christ because they wanted to stay under the written law. But he wanted to give them the law of the spirit. So there he had to bring them from what they understood and tell them that Christ is our high priest and he's already entered the Holy of Holies. But what is he doing while he's in the Holy of Holies? He's making intercession for us. He's bat working out our battles for us. He's given us instruction. He, he represents God to us and us to God. He is the mediator between God and man. And that entails so much. It, it could be summed up in a word mediator, but it entails so much that it's going to take a whole lot of time in order for us to understand exactly all that entails him as high priest. So they know they know Christ is savior. But they do not understand what he can do for them as their, their high priest. I'm saved. I'm sanctified. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm fire baptized. I'm running for Jesus. But what is he doing for you as high priest? Because in the Old Testament, when the high priest went in to the holy place once a year, their attention was to stay focused on what he was doing in there. And then when he came out, there was a great shout. So we got to be focused on what is he doing right now at the throne for, for me? Because he, he's taking the, the blood of my sacrifice and he's sprinkling it on the mercy seat right now. He's still sprinkling blood for the stuff that we need cleansed in our life. That process is not done yet. Because after that's done, he comes out. So until he returns, he's still working for you in the Holy of Holies. So as we grow in the word, we learn to use it in daily life. As we apply the word, we exercise our spiritual senses and develop spiritual discernment. It is a characteristic of little children that they lack discernment. A baby will put anything into its mouth. An immature believer will listen to any preacher on the radio 
or television or pulpit and not be able to identify whether or not he or she is true to the scriptures. See, we got to realize that we are still creatures subject to error. No matter how good we think we are at breaking the scriptures down, we are still subject and even prone to error. And then we have to remember that that our own ego and personality can get mixed up into a message. We could say, you know, this is pure right off, hot off the uh, iron of heaven, out the oven. This is fresh bread. But we still have that tendency and ability to assert ourselves into it. Our wills. Our idiosyncrasies. And we could try to keep it pure. But even me, I, I have things, you know, that's just my personality. I mix it in there. I try to keep it, you know, pure and I do the best I can. But you, as a, as a Christian, you have a duty to decipher that stuff out and say, okay, that's his opinion. But you have to know what the word says for yourself. And you will never know that kind of stuff unless you get into the word. The big babies were unable to decipher between the right and the wrong. Not actions, but the stuff that was being presented and told to them. They couldn't decipher what was right and what was wrong. They just ate it all up. That's right. Oh, we got to obey this law still? Okay. So he says, therefore, leaving the, the foundations. Foundations are building blocks. First Corinthians 3 and 10 says, by the grace of God has given, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So when Paul laid the foundation of Jesus Christ, he laid them with the principles of the doctrine of Christ that he names in Hebrews 6. Baptism, repentance, faith in God. Those were already laid. The Hebrew writer found these Christians rehashing the same doctrines over and over again. They displayed a level of spiritual immaturity that had this been a natural application would concern any pediatrician. If you were to take your child to the doctor at three or four years old and they still doing things that one year old, your old babies do, that's cause for concern. They only speak as a one year old. They can't put a thought together by five or six years old. They still saying goo goo gaga, da da. That's a problem. But this is what the Christians were doing. He said, You've been saved long enough not to be acting and talking like this. The teenagers don't go around in diapers. <laughs> you know, going around in diaper drinking from a baby bottle. <laughs> that that's a problem. But this is what he's dealing with and he knew what level they should be on because he's the one that had been teaching them only one foundation can be laid but here's the key that one foundation can only be laid once 
You don't need foundation laid more than once. Yet, they were laying the same foundation over and over and over and over again. There's some things that are in the scriptures. There are 66 books in the Bible. How many of them have we really get dived into? Most of us in here have been saved for several years, decades. Honestly, how deep have we gone? So he says, not laying again the foundation. God will, God will not lay it again in his purposes. You are not to be forever laying it again in your mind and memory. As it is settled in the heavens, so let it be settled here. You are not to forget it so as to have to learn it again. You are not to doubt it so as to need to be convinced of it again. You are not to forsake it so as to have to return to it again. You are not to be like an insane or unskillful builder who excavates the foundation of his work, tears it from its place, and takes it to pieces, being doubtful of its materials or uncertain of its sufficiency to sustain the superincumbent weight. And who always engaged in destroying the foundation and laying it again makes no progress with his building. It's insane. So most people who keep rehashing the same fundamental task are apparently unsure of the validity and effectiveness of those fundamentals. I don't know if you're trying to convince me or convince yourself. Why we keep talking about this? Because if you convincing the foundation is there, you ought to believe it's rock solid. And if you believe it's rock solid, there should be a building being erected on it by now. So he who is sure of his foundation, he'll start building. And this is what he means by you will know them by their fruit. If there ain't no house on that foundation, when he comes back, he wants to see a house. He don't want to see a foundation. You start building your house, you pay that three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars to excavate the land and, and lay the foundation, and you come back four years later and there's nothing there but the foundation. That's not gonna work. So he says, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ. We have to leave these first principles as the pupil leaves the alphabet when he is brought to the process of combining letters into syllables and syllables into words and words constructing sentences and of sentences making a discourse. There ought to be a gradual growth in our, you know, we, we still saying ABCs and want people to get excited that we sing an ABC. So we must leave them as the architect leaves the foundation and proceeds to erect it upon his superstructure. We must leave them as the mathematician leaves his axioms and proceeds to the construction of his demonstration. To what purpose would the pupil have learned the elements of language if he should rest in them? Where the use of continuing in them over without proceeding any further? What benefit would result from the labor and expense of laying the best foundation if it remain unappropriated, if no building be reared up on it? How long might the mathematician occupy himself 
in, a, in ascertaining the axioms of the science without coming to a single vulnerable result. And what advantage will accrue to us or the world from our acquiring the mere elements of Christianity without reducing them to practice, pushing them out to their ulterior results and connecting them with the higher principles of a spiritual life. So now we're getting into wasted time and fruitlessness. See, we, we're taught that, you know, the more we dwell on these six principles, you know, that's, that's where the fruit comes. But the fruit is in the seed. The seed's going to do what it needs to do. But where's the growth? It needs to grow from a seed into whatever it is, whether it be a tree, a plant, or whatever. So he says we have to move on to perfection. This phrase, let us go on, actually should be translated, let us be carried forward. Because it is God who enables us to progress as we yield to him, receive his word, and act on it. A baby does not grow himself. He grows as he eats, sleeps, exercises, and permits his body to function. Nature, as ordained by God, carries the baby along day after day, and gradually he matures into an adult. Is it normal? I'm sorry. It is normal for Christians to grow. It is abnormal for them to have arrested growth. So he's saying here, it ain't normal for you to be stuck in the same A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It is the duty and obligation of every parent to facilitate a proper education for their child. They should closely assess that child's progress. I wouldn't be a, a good parent if I saw that my kid was not progressing in school and just to let them go on. But this is the problem with the educational system now. Instead of taking the, the, the responsibility to teach and make sure they get it, because that's the goal of teaching, to make sure they get it. It should be. It used to be. <laughs> but if they're not getting it, then you say, okay, well, I did my part. And you, you got to either move on or something. So they just pass them on because they get tired of you. That goes back into what we were talking about earlier. Or actually last night. You know, you you don't get it in a certain amount of time. How how long are you going to stay here? Because I, I can't stay on you. I don't, I don't have the patience for you. So while we're talking about the pupils here growing up, now we've shifted it to the teacher. Because sometimes there's a problem in the teaching system. To where if there's not growth, then there's a problem with the administration. This also includes emotional and social development. This phrase actually could, should be rendered, let us be carried on. The word is emphatic, intimating such a kind of progress as a ship makes when it is under sail. We have abided long enough by the shore. Let us now hoist ourselves and launch into the deep. In swimming lessons, we practice our kick, either holding on to the edge or floating on a boogie board. But eventually that kick had to be perfected and you had to launch out into deeper water. So now we he's dealing here with folk that are just, you know, they say I'm swimming. Oh, ooh, I'm swimming. I think it was Bishop Saunders said he, he used to trick his kids. You know, he 
He, you know, he do he be doing this, but he's in shallow water. So he's actually walking. He's moving. It looks like he's moving, but he's not really swimming. And if that were to launch him out into a deep, if he were in the deep seas and the, the boat turned over, he would be in a world of trouble because he never took the time to learn to swim. This is really what life is all about. He's trying to teach us to swim. So we ought to rise to walk in the newness of life. Our lives should be new, fresh, and invigorating. So progression. Progression is what marks all of God's works. We talked last night that the creation has never stood still since it was created. It's given him glory since the day it was created and will give him glory the day it ends, if it ever ends. No, it won't end because he created the earth to be inhabited. In nature, there is no perfect rest. There is change in everything, change which partakes of the character of progress, for even that which we regard as decay is but a part of new creative process. We are begotten by the word, which like the sun is in constant motion from one end of the globe to the other. Spiritual knowledge is essential to spiritual health. He said to grow in grace and knowledge. You won't grow in grace if you don't have knowledge. So then that goes back to the teacher. If the teacher's giving knowledge, then we ought to be retaining it to move on. If my daughter's school fails her, I've got to find another school. If I'm not growing, there's a problem with two things. Either I'm not being taught it or I'm not comprehending it. So I've got to check both sides of the equation here and fix the problem. Because I'm mandated by the word of God to grow. And when he comes back, he wants to see some fruit. And if he doesn't see fruit, we'll, we'll get to it. You're only profitable to be burned. Spiritual knowledge is essential to spiritual health. Digging deep into the riches of spiritual truth, we discover that which not only stays the anxious throbbing of the heart, but which lifts the soul nearer and nearer to the source of truth, to God himself. The purpose of the seed of the word of God is for us to bring forth fruit to perfection. Not just fruit, but he says that the fruit must be to perfection, maturity. In Hebrews 6, and later in verse number 7, he says, When a farmer's land has had many showers upon it, and good crops come up, the land has experienced God's blessing upon it. But if it keeps on having crops of thistles and thorns, the land is considered no good and is ready for condemnation and burning off. The soil. And he says here, he tested over many seasons. So in Hebrews 6, he's not dealing with somebody just that at age two. These are people that have been saved for years and years and years and still was not getting it. So here are, are the tools he gave us. He gave us the fivefold ministry. And what good is a carpenter without his proper tools? He's only going to be as good as his tools. Because the better tools he has, the more efficient he can be. You are no match for the devil without the proper tools. And only God knows what you need for the test that you're about to face. 
try it 10 years later come come against you know they they ask you to give an interview and you can say a b c d e f g h i j you in the test of your life and all you know acts 238 you must be born again of the water and the spirit and the devil sitting there saying is that all you got see that works when you got saved but now that you've been over here, that, you ain't going to be able to stand up against the devil with, oh, speaking in tongues. It's like going on a job interview, quoting the ABCs. You think you're going to get hired? I want to be an accountant. But I, all I know is two plus two. I'm still learning how to carry over, you know, and, and, and borrow. But I'm going to be an accountant for a Fortune 500 company. This is what we're dealing with here. This is what he's telling them. You're no match. Ephesians 4 and says, Some of us have been given special ability as apostles. To others he has given the gift of being able to preach well. Some have special ability of winning people to Christ, helping them to trust him as their savior. Still others have a gift of caring for God's people as a shepherd does his sheep, leading and teaching them in the ways of God. See, there's a difference between an evangelist and a pastor. Evangelists can get you into the kingdom, but a pastor will cause you to grow. Some in the ministry don't know what they, they think they're pastors, but they're evangelists. Some think they're evangelists, but they're pastors. Because they go out there to a, to a new soul and they try to give them meat. They try to give them a, a ribeye steak, but they can't handle it. You're not an evangelist. You're a pastor. So why is it that he gives us these special abilities to do certain things best? It is that God's people will be equipped to do better work for him, building up the church, the body of Christ, to a position of strength and maturity until finally we all believe alike about our salvation and about our Savior, God's Son, and all become full grown in the Lord. Yes, to the point of being filled full with Christ, the full stature of Christ. Then 1 Corinthians says, The Holy Spirit displays God's power through each of us as a means of helping the entire church. So not only does he give us the fivefold ministry, but he gives us the gifts in the church. So then Paul, uh, the Hebrew writer brings in this term. Now the Lord willing will go on to perfection. The Hebrew writer invokes God's will into, into the matter. He has already expressed his disappointment with the Hebrew Christians and point out their inability or, refu or refusal to grow in grace and knowledge. But rather than give them the principles of the Doctrine 101 course again, he pushes them into deeper water by the will of God. Now, he, he comes to them and says, now, you're not ready for me. Now, usually if you say you're not ready for meat, then you will say, OK, now let me masticate this now and give it to you in baby portions. But instead, he says, even though you're not ready, I'm going to hold you up to your responsibility. I'm going to take you into deeper water anyway. So we have to we have to force that student and push that student. You, you need to be pushed into maturity. 
And God is trying to push some of the old babies to be mature. Old babies. But they claim, they, they claim, I'm grown. I'm grown. What, you, do you know how to handle your bills and pay your, your bills on time? No, but I'm 18. I'm grown. I don't know. I don't know why my girlfriend don't want to be bothered with me. You know, well, can you pay your car note? Right. I don't have a car. My car got repo, but I'm grown. I'm, I know this. I know that. I, I, I'm grown. So what did the apostle resolve? I'm sorry. Why did the apostle resolve to set strong meat before the Hebrews when he knew they were babes? Number one. Though some of them were but weak, yet others of them had gained more strength and yet must be provided for suitably. And as those who were grown Christians must be willing to hear the plainest of truths preached for the sake of the weak, so the weak must be willing to hear the more difficult and mysterious truths preached for the sake of those who are strong. And secondly, he hoped that they would be growing in their spiritual strength and stature and so be able to digest stronger meat. In other words, you have to you have to test a baby to see where they're at. Because some babies go at different paces. Dally's at the point now. She don't really want too much Gerber's. Because she didn't taste some other stuff. So here we are. Where there is no growth, there is most certainly retardation. I'm sorry, we're supposed to be politically correct. <laughs> and that's what, re, that's what the word retard means. It means stunted, stopped. The writer is concerned that if growth doesn't start now, these believers run the risk of detouring from the faith and reverting back to Judaism, relying upon those dead works to save them. So when you refuse to grow, then all you could do now is talk about all the laws that you keep to prove that you're saved. That is a mark of an immature Christian. This is, these are the Hebrews he's talking to. And their whole thing is, I'm saved because I'm a child of Abraham. I'm saved because I've been circumcised. I'm saved because I keep this law and that law and this. In other words, I'm saved because, you know, he kept me all week and I, I, I didn't fornicate and I didn't lie and I didn't do that. Now you're relying instead of growing. You're into legalism. Now, Natalie beautifully brought out before that we, we always heard about that term fall from grace. But the people that he was talking to concerning falling from grace were those that were relying upon the, the law and the legalistic rules to keep them. Because if you rely on that, you don't need grace. So falling from grace actually means that you're relying upon yourself to keep yourself saved. These are the marks of, of immature Christians. It is time for us. To be truly circumcised in the heart. There has been a great deliverance and confusing wandering. Talking about the children of Israel. They came out of Egypt. And now they're in a place of wandering. If we view the Passover sacrifice from a mature perspective. 
God will allow us to eat the fruit of the promised land. He will stop the repetitious manna. Okay, let's get Joshua 5. There's something in this. Listen to what he says here. When the nations west of the River Jordan, the Amorites and the Canaanites who lived among the Mediterranean coast, heard that the Lord had dried up the Jordan River so that the people of Israel could cross, their courage melted away completely and they were paralyzed with fear. The Lord then told Joshua to set aside a day to circumcise the entire male population of Israel. It was the second time in Israel's history that this was done. So there's two circumcisions here. All right. Now, God wants the true circumcision of the heart. The Lord instructed them to manufacture flint knives for this purpose. The place where the circumcision rite took place uh, was named the heel of the foreskins. The reason for the second circumcision ceremony was that although when Israel left Egypt, all of the men who had been old enough to bear arms had been circumcised. That entire generation had died during the years in the wilderness, and none of the boys born since that time had been circumcised. For the nation of Israel had traveled back and forth across the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who had been old enough to bear arms when they left Egypt were dead. They had not obeyed the Lord, and he vowed that he wouldn't let them enter into the land that he promised to Israel, a land that flowed with milk and honey. So the Lord causes them to be stuck in the middle. They, they, they've left Egypt. They've been delivered. And the, they got this prophet Moses telling them that there's a land that God reserved for you flowing with milk and honey. But they're in a position to where they can't get to it. They're stuck in the middle. And the reason it took 40 years is because God didn't kill everybody of plague and, and stuff like that. He actually waited for them to die a natural death. So now Joshua circumcised their children, the men who had grown up to take their father's places. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have ended your shame and not being of not being circumcised. So the place where this was done was called Gilgal, meaning to end. Okay, this is the second generation. He's switching them over and getting the second generation ready to enter what the first generation could not because of their hardness of heart. And it is still called that today. So what what the Hebrew writer is telling these Christians, there needs to be a there needs to be an end to all this rehashing of the same doctrines. You need to stop it. So you can move on after the ceremony, the entire nation rested in the camp until the raw flesh of their wounds had been healed. So in the process, there has to be a new circumcision and a new healing before we could go into the land. So while they were camped at Gilgal, verse number 10, on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated the Passover during the evening of the first of April 1st. OK, now they had celebrated the Passover for 40 years. But this Passover was going to look different to them. There comes a time in the real Christian, mature Christian's life where he begins to look at the cross differently than when he first got saved. Wow. And when you see that cross in a new light, it will propel you into new promise. This is what we were talking about earlier today. 
The next day they begin to eat, listen now, from the gardens and grain fields, which they invaded and they made unleavened bread. The following day, no manna fell and it was never seen again. They left the principles of the doctrine and God gave them new food. So he says in Acts chapter four, I believe, repent, therefore, and be converted that the times of refreshing may come. Refreshing is not just the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but it starts a whole nother realm a whole nother era in your life. So he say, says here, no manna fail. Now, they were eating the same manna every day of the week for 40 years the same old bread for 40 years now did it preserve them yes did it sustain them yes but did they grow their lives represented the same repetitious manner that they ate every day because he said that when they brought their sacrifices their mind was already gearing up to bring next year's same sin sacrifice. All right, here's this year's. All right, I might as well go and start saving up for next year's because I know I'm going to keep on doing the same old thing. All right, so there we see that, number one, there has to be another circumcision. Then number two, there has to be another healing. Then number three, there has to be a new meal set before you. When that new meal starts, the old meal gets cut off. One commentary says, I once heard a preacher say most Christians are betweeners. What do you mean by that? I asked. They are between Egypt and Canaan out of the place of danger, but not yet into the place of rest and rich inheritance. They are between Good Friday and Easter. They're saved by the blood but not yet enjoying newness of resurrection life. So I ask, are you a betweener? 